Let me go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started with today's equipping hour. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Father, we thank you for another morning of being able to experience your grace and your mercy, um, your blessings, uh, to be able to know who you are, and all of this made available to us in Christ. We thank you for this body that we can gather with, uh, who we can study the word with, and I pray that today's equipping our lesson would be convicting, uh, would be encouraging to one another. May it help us to see sin rightly, uh, to understand you, God, rightly, um, and to behave and, and live accordingly. Pray that you'd help me teach, uh, help my listeners to listen and hear, and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Welcome back for another week of equipping hour. Um, we, if you haven't been joining us, I'll just reiterate, we've been in our series uh, covering Jerry Bridges' book called Respectable Sins. And uh, of course we know there are no respectable sins. The title just kind of um, alludes to sins that we make acceptable or subtle sins that we let slide under the radar in our lives. Uh, that's the main thrust of the book. Um, he writes this book and lays out several chapters of studying different kinds of sins and, and how those sins we, we somehow let slide. We somehow commit them and think that they're okay or we convince ourselves and others that these sins are not as bad as the bigger sins. So that's our series on respectable sins. And of course, with this series, as always, we're going to be diving into and dissecting. Um, we have a couple of different sins today. Uh, we're going to be dissecting those sins and studying them uh, more thoroughly to understand all the nuances and all the deceitfulness of that sin. Uh, but of course, with that, we don't want to just be stuck understanding sin, sin at a better level, but we want to be able to be equipped to deal with these sins now that we know how much more deceitful and subtle they are. We want to be able to put them to death. That is the ultimate goal that we have. Um, if you were here last week, I'm going to do a little, something a little similar before we even dive into our sins of lack of self-control, envy, jealousy, and the other ones. I'm going to do something similar by providing a little tool, a little strategy uh, that Bridges offers to us in the first couple chapters of his book that will help us to fight sin. Um, last week, does anyone remember what the tool was or the, the encouragement, the exhortation from last week? Yes a single thing that I mentioned. Preach the gospel. Thank you, yeah. So preaching the gospel when we are faced with our sin helps us to see it rightly, helps us to understand God rightly, helps us to understand what Christ has done for us and achieved for us and won for us, um, and helps us to understand how we ought to live, how we ought to fight and put, death, or put to death our sin. So that was last week's tool. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel. This week's tool uh, is also pretty simple. It's simply be the saints that you are. 
That is, that is our tool, our strategy that I'm drawing from chapter one of his book. Be the saints that you are. So, saints. What, what does it mean to be a saint? We, I think we're often reminded of this word. It, it, comes, up into our, it comes into our mind when we're reading uh, some of Paul's epistles. Uh, he refers to the people, the churches that he's writing to, the peoples in those churches as saints. He calls them saints. He calls those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So what does it mean to be a saint? Does anyone have a quick definition or have an understanding? Of what does it mean to be called a saint or to be a saint? So we have uh, part of God's uh, part of God's church body, uh, chosen His child. Those are good good definitions. Anyone else? What does it mean to be a saint? That's Randy. A disciple of Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. Disciple of Jesus. Chen Wei. Set apart. Yes. So we're getting into the kind of the root word of of saint there, um, being set apart, and that's kind of what we'll work with. Uh, for today. To be a saint is to be someone set apart, and I would add by God, for God. To be a saint is to be someone set apart by God, for God. And the word, or the, the identity, saint, that, that Paul and, and other authors in the Bible uh, ascribe to us Christians is not just a character trait. It's not something that's tagged on it's not something that is a character trait that you might be lacking in or need work in. Um, but to be a saint is a state of being. It is a status that we have before God. It is our identity. Um, so it's not really a question if you are in Christ. It's not really a question of whether or not I'm a saint or how much of a saint I am. But if you are in Christ, then you are a saint. Um, one of the examples that Bridges draws from is 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and if you read that letter, uh, you know that the Corinthian church is very far from perfect. They are stuck in lots of sin, uh, lots of division uh, amongst their church. But Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians, those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. So even those who are sinning terribly, against God and sinning terribly against one another, Paul still calls saints. Um, so again, you could still be a sinner, as we all are. We still battle besetting sins. Uh, we still struggle with our own weakness and frailty. Um, but th that does not negate the fact that we in Christ are saints. Um, and I hope that we can latch on to that truth as we talk about our sins today, um, because that's so important. I mean, that's very much tied into preaching the gospel to ourselves from last week. Christ has died to cleanse us of our sin, and he set us apart as saints. Again, we are set apart by God for God. Um, Bridges kind of summarizes, he kind of summarizes the point of 1 Corinthians. Paul is exhorting the, the Corinthian church, uh, calling them out on their sin, and his main thrust is, you guys are saints, so act like saints. 
And that would be the same exhortation I would have for myself and for all of you guys today in our lesson today. We are saints, so we should act like saints. Um, so hang on to that as we, as we dive into the rest of our lesson today. Um, are there any questions or any need for clarification on what I kind of explained just now? Anything at all? All right. So we'll move right along. Our first sin that we're studying today is lack of self-control. It's a bit of a, a mouthful, um, but we'll first start by defining what is self-control, not so much what is the lack of self-control, uh, but what is self-control? Uh, could I have a couple of readers? Um, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Josh, thank you. Um, and then we have 1 Peter uh, 2, chapter, or First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Matt Boyd, thank you. And then 1 Peter 5, verse 8 to 9. Paul, thank you. So, uh, Josh, go ahead. So Paul is comparing self-control. He uses the illustration of an athlete. Um, athletes running to receive their prize. Uh, but they ought to be self-controlled in all things. There's a sense of being self-controlled in their training, in their conduct. Um, and Paul even describes that about himself. But I discipline my own body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul there is seeing the effect of him lacking self-control could lead to his own uh, people not giving him the qualifications that he has, people not honoring who he is and people not taking to heart what he has to preach because of his own lack of self-control is what he's explaining there. I have uh, Matt Boyd with First Peter 2. Here, Peter follows the same theme. Um, he even goes as far as to say that the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul. It's a, it's a very strong illustration there that, that sinful passions and sinful desires are actually waging war on our soul. They're not just these subtle desires and subtle things that we, we entertain, but these desires are waging war and wanting ultimately the death of our soul. They are waging war against our soul. And Peter there is saying that we ought to be self-controlled so that others, when they see our good deeds and see our good conduct, uh, give glory to God. Um, he draws out that purpose there. And then we'll have Paul read First Peter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around 
resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Thank you. So here, um, the character of Satan is introduced into our into our battle, into our our uh, struggle to be self-controlled. Satan is uh, very actively against us and very actively trying to cause us to tr- to trip, to to sin, to fall into temptation. And part of being self-controlled is to resist him, to be firm in faith, as uh, as Peter says there. So the, the working definition of self-control uh, that Bridges has for us, I, I thought it was very good, well-worded. The definition of self-control is a governance or prudent control of one's desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. Very comprehensive there. Again, the definition of self-control is a governance or prudent control of one's desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. So with that definition in mind, what are we controlling? It's that list of things that he said. Desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, passions. Um, But why is there a need for self-control? Let's just pretend we don't know. Why is there a need for self-control? What about those desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, passions? What about them needs to be controlled? Well, as we all know, the fact of the matter is our natural desires of the flesh are sinful. And we see that very clearly in Galatians 5.17. Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So our flesh... And you'll see in in chapter 5 of Galatians, our flesh desires things like pleasure, impurity, uh, self-exaltation, etc. Our desires are justified in our own pride, in our own wisdom, in our own power. Uh, This this is not at all separated from what we discussed last week, uh, the sins of pride and selfishness. Very much so, our lack of self-control draws its power from our self-exalting. We think that we are something, we make something of ourselves, we exalt ourselves, and we think that we know what desires are good and bad, we know, we think that we ought to be, um, or we deserve certain things, and we deserve certain desires to be met uh, because of who we've made ourselves out to be. Um, but even in that, we, we see the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of the lack of self-control. Uh, the sin promises fulfillment, it promises pleasure, it promises satisfaction. Um, but do they lead to any of these things? Maybe very, very momentarily, but we know that sin, in its deceitfulness, ultimately leads us to destruction. We, we want this fleeting pleasure, we want this fleeting gain, um, and we sacrifice ultimate pleasure and ultimate gain and are led to destruction by our own sin. Um, and so there we see that that the lack of self-control here is, is just a war on ourselves, really. It's, uh, it does us no good to seek after those sinful desires, those desires of the flesh. Um, but in that same verse, 
It's very clear that desires of the flesh are opposed to God. The in, in chapter 5, verse 17 right there, we see that desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit. Um, so we're not just opposing ourselves and we're not just leading ourselves to destruction. Um, but in our godlessness, in our ungodliness, we are opposing God. We're rebelling against them by walking in the desires of the flesh. Um, if you came in today and you were thinking about, man, maybe I lack self-control in this area, or maybe I lack self-control in these areas, uh, but it's only like one or two areas of my life where maybe I could tighten up the strings or tighten up uh, my discipline in those areas. Um, but the reality of not having self-control and the reality of giving ourselves over to sinful desires is that we make ourselves out to be enemies of God. Um, and that's kind of what I want us to see today. That That is the pure ungodliness of the sin. We make ourselves to be enemies of God. God wants this for us. He has this desire from the Spirit for us. Uh, but we say no, and we want another thing. Um, ultimately, our flesh does not want God. We don't desire God in our sinful nature. Uh, we don't want anything to do with his holiness, his righteousness, and we don't want anything to do with his goodness that he has for us. We think that we know what's good, we know what's right, and we'll, we'll, we'll want that, I'll take that, I'll take Terry's definition of what's good and uh, pleasurable, but what God defines as good and intends to be good for us, we say, nope, it's okay, I'll, I'll pass on that. So in our sinful flesh, we want nothing to do with God. Um, and as we kind of parse out this imagery of waging war, um, knowing that sinful desires wage war on our souls, uh, I want to turn your attentions to Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight. This is how Bridges opens up his chapter on this sin. Uh, it's a simple proverb. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's Proverbs 25, 28. So very, very clearly, we're talking about self-control here as someone without self-control. And he describes it as a city broken into and left without walls. And you might be wondering, so how does, how does that actually look in our lives as we maybe lack self-control? Well, we are broken into, so we give, give opportunity to initial sin, uh, that initial sin, that initial lack of control that we exhibit, but then we're left without walls. So more sin and more temptation comes and attacks us and comes and pesters us uh, because we don't have those walls. That we've been broken down and we have not paid any mind to rebuilding the walls or doing anything about it, we're basically a sitting duck waiting to be attacked. And that's what, how I want us to kind of view the lack of self-control this morning, is that this is, a, this is an all-out war. Like, Satan will not just hit you with one attack, uh, help you or cause you to lose self-control in one instance, and then he'll just retreat and, and let you be until you build up your walls. If he sees opportunity, he'll keep taking it over and over again, uh, ultimately, to have us destroyed. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, 
maybe you are a pretty self-disciplined person. Uh, you don't have too many areas of, uh, of life where you lack self-control. You're pretty disciplined. You're pretty on top of things. Uh, you're pretty good at saying no to sin. You're pretty aware of it. Uh, but maybe there's that one or two area areas in your life that you slip up every now and then. I would highly exhort you to, to try and patch that up, address that area, be very intentional about having almost this battle-like mentality in that area, knowing that that one area, if you let it run rampant, could cause you to fall into further sin, um, can open the gates to other sin. So again, we have this, this image of waging war against our souls. And if we take our imagery, our, our tool from earlier of being saints, um, that's exactly what God is calling us to do. Uh, saints being sanctified uh, are without blemish. Uh, we know that in our reality, in our current reality, uh, we still have sin and we still live in sin. Uh, but God calls us and has, and has made us the status of a saint and calls us to live by that status. So even if there is one area or two, or maybe a very, very like half an area where we're lacking self-control, right? We still want to address it with an all-out effort as if we were a soldier in combat. We want to address it and kill it because it is sin and it, it is what Bridges would call unbecoming of who you are as a saint. He uses this, Im this imagery of uh, Navy SEALs, of, of soldiers, and uh, they have very strict conduct and stri very strict code of conduct uh, whenever they are um, out, out doing their, their missions and, and completing their duties. Um, and that strict code of conduct, if they were to break rules, uh, break any of the rules, that would make them very unbecoming or not in the step of being who they are, being the soldier or Marine or Navy SEAL that they are. And that's the same kind of idea that I want to apply to ourselves as we, as we fight sin, as we try to keep self-control over our desires, is that any small thing could mean, could look like we are unbecoming of our identities as saints. It's not in step. Um, so is, is that clear? Does, does, does anyone need any more clarification on that? Or any comments on that, Tim?
Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It's, it's helpful. I'll, I'll draw a little bit of what Tim said, and I think it's helpful even moving forward. There's there's always those desires, of course, in our heart, um, and we have to be self-controlled about those and acknowledge them when they're sinful and when we recognize them to be of the flesh. Um, but then there are there are kind of behaviors or manifestations of our actions from those desires uh, that we ought to, ought to also have a good reign over and, and be controlled in. Yeah. And anyone else, any other questions? Yeah, Randy. Yeah, you use the metaphor of self-control being a wall that can be broken down. When I think of a wall, it serves two purposes. To keep things out, keep things in. Hmm. If the wall is built solid and steady and maintained, it's keeping us where God wants us to be. When we let the wall fall into disrepair, then we can be attacked by Satan. Hmm. Yeah, so Randy's bringing out that illustration on the wall, it keeps things out and it keeps things in. And we want, of course, we want that wall to be built up, especially inevitably as sinful people, it might get torn down, it might get beaten up, but we always want to maintain it so that it serves that purpose. Yeah, thank you. Chinway. Yeah, so Chen Wei is asking how do we, yeah, how do we not just push down and suppress sinful desires, but how do we have help someone move on from that or move forward from that? Um, and yeah, we'll, we will address that uh, in a couple minutes. So hang tight. Yeah, let's, uh, let's get into some, some ways or some arenas that self-control can, uh, can either be lacking or maybe you're good at it. Uh, what does self-control or lack of self-control look like? And I, I mainly have two categories. Uh, we have, I have a focus on emotions, uh, being self-controlled or lacking self-control in your emotions. And then the second category, second arena, I'll call it, is uh, social media and cell phones. Um, so we'll focus on emotions first. Um, as human beings, I would hope that we all have some degree of emotions and there are times when our emotions are very subtle and very low-key, um, but there are definitely times we acknowledge that our emotions can get very heightened. Um, and in that state of heightened emotion, there is a temptation to produce uh, sin, or there is temptation to fall into sinful desires that drive those emotions, uh, affecting some arena of life. And I have a couple like smaller arenas that we can observe. The first one would be Food and drink. Uh, Paul, or not Paul, uh, Bridges uses a very, I thought it was kind of a silly example of ice cream. Uh, I think Tim mentioned dessert too. But ice cream, on his way to the, the postal office, there's the ice cream shop that he likes, and uh, he's very, he likes ice cream a lot, and he has to exercise self-control in not getting uh, ice cream every time he goes to the postal office. And I thought that, I was like, oh yeah, I mean, 
you know, treat yourself every now and then. It's not sinful, of course. I want to be clear to, to have dessert and have uh, things that are enjoyable. Uh, but kind of like what Tim uh, drew out, it's the idea of having moderation. Um, and actually acknowledging, like, why do I want this ice cream? Or why do I want this thing? Why do I have this desire? Um, for food and drink, for food, maybe some people are driven by the desire for comfort. After work, um, you've been stressed all day, you've been working hard, and food provides you comfort. Or maybe you've had very stressful day at work, a stressful situation, and you, you might have heard of something called stress eating. People eat because they're stressed out, um, and that's kind of their, their coping mechanism. Um, so in both of those instances, we see a sinful desire, a desire of the flesh that drives us to something that is otherwise not inherently evil, not inherently sinful. Um, but, but Bridges actually goes like one step further in his ice cream example and says, uh, he just chooses not to get it at all, um, purely for the sake of practicing self-control. Um, and it's not so much in that one instance that he's fighting the temptation for pleasure through ice cream, uh, but he very actively tells himself, no, I won't have ice cream this time because I want to be self-controlled this time. But he also acknowledges that a practice or a leniency of letting lack of self-control run rampant in this small instance of ice cream could seem like a very small thing, um, but making it a habit, making it a practice could lead to further bigger sins down the line, and that's kind of what he's getting at there. Um, seems, again, it seemed really silly to me at first to use this small example of, of ice cream to mention how he's practicing for bigger temptations and bigger sinful desires that he might be battling, but he wants to ingrain in himself this, this, uh, this habit, this posture of wanting to be self-controlled. Um, and I would argue he's doing that for the sake of living as a saint. He wants to be upright in that sense. So we have food and drink. I mean, uh, we could talk about alcoholism and, and things like that. Uh, but of course, the same, same uh, concept applies there. Uh, the second arena, moving on from food and drink, that we could have heightened emotions in is family. Whether it's between two spouses, uh, between parents and their children, um, we all are familiar with heightened emotions at home. Uh, whether know, spouses are, are arguing with one another or disagreeing with one another on something, whether parents and, and children are, are fighting over authority, um, desires, passions, emotions, cravings, um, these things often flare up, often flare up in a self-serving way, um, and then we lash out because of them. There's not only that desire um, that comes up in our hearts, but we act out. We say things in a tone that's not very honoring to our parents. Uh, we ignore our spouse. We, we treat them in a not very kind way, not in a way that is meant to nourish or cherish them at all. Um, but we let our sin get the best of us, and we, we lose that self-control at home. It's easy, because we're familiar with them. We're around them all the time. They ought to know what I want and what I don't want. Um, but I would encourage you guys and, and myself, just be mindful of how our desires and, and passions and emotions 
are expressed at home around um, our family, around our housemates. Um, exercise self-control even then. It seems like everyday interactions that just come and go, um, but each of those is even a little arena for you to practice self-control as Bridges would with his little ice cream example. Um, so I have food and drink and family. Uh, there's obviously a lot more, many, many more arenas uh, where emotions can be heightened. Um, but I'm just gonna leave it at those two for now. Is there anyone that has any any comments, any, any input? Yeah, Randy. Driving, yes. Would you care to elaborate what happened? <laughs> Driving, yes. Um, yeah, a, a big arena for anger, impatience, uh, irritability, self-righteousness on the road. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's hard because if you're driving by yourself, no one's there to keep you accountable when you uh, let that curse word fly or when you, when you think that uh, angry thought, right? It's, uh, it's really, a, really a tough, tough situation there to be self-controlled. Any, anyone else on heightened emotions? Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. Thank you, Matt. So he's Matt is just bringing out that the fact that there are many kind of interplaying parts and desires in our heart uh, that could play into what ultimately comes out as lack of self-control. Um, in in your kind of driving example, it always seems like when I'm already running late and anxious to get to work, it always seems like that's when traffic gets bad, right? Or when I am like you're saying, anxious to see someone I haven't seen for a long time. Um, yeah, it's, it always seems like traffic goes bad, but when I'm just running a simple errand, um, doesn't bother me as much when someone cuts me off or when uh, traffic is really s slow or there's like a, a whole road closure. Doesn't bother me as much when the stakes are a little lower in my heart. Um, but when those emotions again are, are heightened, that's when, that's when we tend to lose that grip a little bit. So I'll go ahead and move on to uh, social media and cell phones. Um, now this this arena is uh, is very pertinent to myself. I, I will confess. And uh, in our day and age, as we as we go along, I, I think 
I, I anticipate that having self-control with our social media and our cell phones will just become an increasingly, um, yeah, increasingly hard, uh, increasingly complex struggle uh, with all the nuances and all the culture that's surrounded with it. Uh, but we'll attempt to address it a little bit today. Uh, and I'll start by just asking, how much, how much time do you use on your cell phone? How much time are you on your devices each day? Uh, I remember back when the pandemic first started, uh, I was in my last quarter of undergrad at Davis, and I, I had the wisdom to set up a little kind of phone screen time tracking app on my phone. I had the wisdom to do that knowing that I'd be stuck at home all day, uh, but boy, did I not enjoy the results I saw. The, the reports that I got were alarming, the, the amount of time that I spent on my phone. Uh, so I would ask you, just reflect, how much time am I spending on my phone, on my devices every day? And what are you doing on your phone? Um, if you're reading scripture on your phone for like eight, eight hours a day, I mean, there's probably some wisdom in parsing out time for other things, but I mean, that sounds pretty good to me um, versus being on your phone playing games or, or watching videos or on social media for eight hours a day. There's this huge contrast there, right? Um, and the point I'm trying to make here is to not be controlled by our devices. Um, the, the device, the social media, the phone, that is not your master, right? Our master is the Lord. The device is not our master. Um, and in terms of us and the phone, we ought to be the master in that situation. We ought not to be run around by our phones and the things of our phone. Um, phones and social media are not sinful inherently. Uh, they can serve great purposes and they, and they serve all of us great, uh, very well through like live streaming and Bible apps and all these resources that we have. Uh, if anything, we are connected to just a, a mountain of resources, of biblical resources because of our phones, of our social media. Um, but the point there being is that phones and social media are meant to be tools for bringing glory to God. They are, they are tools for us to use. Uh, we are the wielder of those tools, and those tools don't use us. Um, at least they're not supposed to. Uh, social media platforms can pose many kind of temptations. Uh, there's temptation to be self-exalting. You might want to put yourself in a certain light and uh, exalt yourself in a certain way uh, to be seen by others. Uh, social media could tempt you to be anxious. Maybe you are tuned into the news, which is good, um, but you might fall prey to the just the overbearing weight of sinfulness that the news exposes you to, and it causes you to be anxious. That's a temptation that you want to guard against, too. And kind of in the same vein, whether it's news, whether it's other things, uh, it's a temptation to be, or there's often temptation to be angry, to grow angry and frustrated and bitter, um, whether through online I interactions with other people, whether it's through the news again, um, it can tempt us to be angry, and uh, many other things. So I invite you guys, just how is my phone usage or social media consumption bringing glory to God? Um, it's, a, it's, it's a real thought exercise, at least for myself, to, to parse out what I'm spending time on, how much time I'm spending on it, and does this activity that I'm doing on social media or on my phone, does it bring glory to God? Uh, there's so many ways 
uh, and I'd love to hear about the ways that maybe you use your phone and your technology. There's so many ways that this, this tool, these tools, can be used for God's glory. Um, God actually gave it to us so that we could use it for that purpose. Um, but in our sinfulness, of course, in our lack of self-control, uh, we let things get out of hand. Uh, we let it affect us. We let it master us instead. Uh, and we do things that are very contradictory to, to what Scripture prescribes for us. Um, so I just ask you guys, are there, are there ways maybe that you use your phone very intentionally to uh, help you in your walk of faith, help you glorify God, help you minister to other people? Are there, are there ways or apps or, or things that you guys use? Uh, I would throw out, I use my calendar very frequently and uh, I almost live by my calendar, my Google calendar, but that really helps me just parse out my time in the day. It's actually one of the things that helps me to figure out what I'm spending my time on each day. I have eight hours of work, I have X amount of hours of sleep, um, and then there's always gonna be that residual time uh, after hygiene and eating and taking care of myself. What am I using that remaining time for? Um, am I reading? Am I watching too many YouTube videos? Am I going out and spending time with people? What is it that I'm spending that time with? Um, so again, yeah, what are, what are some ways that you use technology and, and social media to help serve God's kingdom? So notifications, reminders, timers help us to keep track of time, especially when it gets busy. I think I saw Jeff. Hmm. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> Chef, yeah, a good reminder. Who would have thought phones are used for calls, right? To reach out and serve people. Um, or I'm just gonna go bigger and probably use a text, especially like at six in the morning. I'll text somebody just like, How are you doing? or How do you handle this three days you're sick or something? So you still are contacting them, contact your dad, but you're not sitting on the phone all day long. Hmm. So, Ooh, I feel right now that I'm doing Yeah, maybe. Talking to someone on the phone gives you anxiety and you don't like that feeling. A text, yeah. And time, yeah, agreed. And Tim. Uh, it's like the Kindle app. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Same with like Bible apps, if you wanted to see Bible readings and stuff like that. Those are really easy. Yeah, easy access to the word or resources that are centered around the word throughout the day. Pepper it in. Uh, Matt will be last one. Yeah, saving it to the, to the good old internet, our, our prayer requests, right? We, we can often be very forgetful, but it helps us to, to keep track of prayer requests. Um, it's a good way of sharing prayer requests. Um, and yeah, there are even apps that send you little no notifications like pray for this person this day. Yeah, all, all, good, uh, all good ways. Um, let's move on. Um, kind of addressing what Chenwei was asking about earlier, how do we how do we not just focus on suppressing and saying no to um, these sins and these desires? Um, so kind of like last week, we're gonna focus on this application. This application is, uh, has this focus of defense and offense. So we are guarding and we are protecting ourselves from lack of self-control by defense, and then we're going on the offense and attacking and putting to death this sin uh, by doing certain things. And for our defense, Quite simply, say no, right? Say no and say it again. Uh, when you are faced with desires of the flesh, um, that your instinct and you pray that you would have this instinct, this reflex to say no when you, when you uh, recognize this sinful desire, when you recognize desires of the flesh come up. And after you say no, um, maybe you've said no enough where you don't have to say no as often and you have a pretty good control over the sin, identify patterns and uh, situations that lead you to have these uh, sinful desires. Identify patterns and avoid them. Put up guards and barriers uh, so you won't be able to get near them. And then with that, you kind of like, you're slowly kind of building up the wall. You're slowly easing your mind of the, the burden of always having to say no right in the moment. Of course, you still want to do that, but as you alleviate yourself of those burdens, of those immediate burdens, you can begin to kind of dig into what are the desires, what are the deeper desires at heart that are at play? What are those sinful desires that are driving uh, this outburst of lack of self-control? Um, and to move on from that, on the offense, um, what do we do to, uh, after we suppress sin, after we say no to it, uh, we look for what we ought to do. So we know what we not look for. We, we see that what we shouldn't do is uh, lose self-control and indulge in these fleshly desires. Um, but how do we know what spirits or what the desires of the spirit are? Right? How do we know what those are if they're opposed to the desires of the flesh? Well, start by reading the word and praying often. And pray specifically that you be sensitive and responsive to the spirit-given desires. Um, ask for those desires, of course, but pray specifically that you would be sensitive to them. Pray that the Spirit would soften your heart to the truths that you read. Uh, pray that the Spirit would, would break you down, uh, break down your walls, and, and help you to have humility when other people exhort you and encourage you with, uh, with the word. Uh, be sensitive to those, those ways the Spirit is leading you. Um, and very actively consider good works. Uh, maybe you say no to one sinful desire, 
uh, and you want to combat that with a good work. You want to say no to no, I won't get ice cream uh, for myself, but instead I will call someone. Or if you're feeling tempted to do, uh, to commit a certain sin, say no to it, and then say yes to some other way that you could glorify God and serve him. Um, so yeah, that's our, that's our study on uh, lack of self-control. Is there any questions uh, on this whole sin before we move on, or any comments? Like, like the interplay between emotions and desires. Um, that's a good question. Does anyone have any thoughts? So it's, are you kind of asking like what comes first or what drives the other? Or if um, there is a relationship like that between yeah, the two? Anyone have <laughs> any input on that? I have a yeah. question Anna. within James, mm-hmm. where it talks about, <coughs> um, and I'm probably not going to push the point right now. <laughs> That's okay, yeah. Um, James, where it says, uh, well, when temptation is conceived, it brings forth sin, and then sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, mm-hmm. when temptation is Maybe, yeah. I, Tim. Yeah, and I, I think that's right that there's a. There, basically, it seems like emotion and our passions is a very powerful, very powerful thing within us. I, I think you could find every, every kind of emotion reflects something of God's character and is in itself good, can be used for good. So there's no emotion or type of emotion that's inherently bad. But the problem is they're very powerful. And if they're ungoverned, they can very powerfully lead us into sin. So there's that image of a wall. Like, be careful. You have to govern these things. They're very powerful agencies in our hearts. And so, and like you said, the flesh, there, there can be very easily a pull towards sin with those things. So, you know, jealousy, fear, anger, all these things that can be used righteously, but they're so often corrupted by our, by our sinful, our, our remaining sin. So that's why. That's really what this idea is, is self-control. It's just the governing of these very powerful 
do reflect the image of God in their rock, proper usage, yeah, according to the Stacy. No, that's helpful. Uh, I'll Blake, and then Blake will be the last one. No, that's that's helpful. I think uh, appreciate everyone's input. I think Blake there is drawing out the fact that as we obey God, um, the Lord doesn't intend to oppose us as we obey Him, um, but He is very much blessing us as we obey Him with our emotions, with our desires, um, even as our as Tim mentioned, our emotions reflect them. Uh, we very quickly in our sinfulness can can defile them with our sin uh, with our desires and um, yeah being very very keen on on uh, governing them with with God's will in mind as, as Blake mentioned so I appreciate that uh, we'll move right along to I kind of grouped all the sins of chapter 18 as sinful rivalry uh, and you'll see there are four different kind of sub-sins in that category, but I categorize them all as, I group them all together as sinful rivalry under the definition of a posture in which two people are pitted against each other or in opposition with the goal of self-exaltation. It's a long one there. It's a posture in which two people are pit against each other or they're in opposition with the goal of self-exaltation. So again, we're kind of uh, drawing on our discussion from last week, uh, understanding how ungodliness is like the root of sin and, and pride is the, the trunk of that sin of, or of that tree of sin. Um, and here, here we have kind of an outcropping of pride again. Um, we are being opposed to one another, whether it is within the church body as, as believers or even, uh, even to unbelievers, we can be opposed to them with this desire for self-exaltation. Um, and to help us understand that a little better, we'll, we'll go on to our next section. What does sinful rivalry look like? And we'll start with envy. 
And uh, I acknowledge that envy and the next one, jealousy, might have very similar definitions, but I'll try my best to, to parse out the, the distinction between the two. So envy uh, would be defined by the painful and often resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. The painful and often resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Uh, or in other words, you notice God's blessing in someone else's life and you respond with bitter comparison. You might ask or say something like, where's mine, God, where's my blessing? Or why them, God? Why do they deserve that and not me? Uh, it might come up very overtly, um, but it might come up as small little instances as well. Uh, for example, when I see someone get an advantage or get a blessing or uh, have some gain in their life, do I rejoice with them? I think that would be a good first question to ask. Am I rejoicing with them as they rejoice? And then an even more telling question after I'm rejoicing with them or even in the midst of rejoicing with them, does a bitter comparison creep up into my heart either during the rejoicing or after the rejoicing? It's a very, very small way that that uh, this sinful rivalry creeps up on us. If you see someone rejoicing over something, do you are you very quick to end your rejoicing? Is your rejoicing very fleeting? Um, and it can be, but is it replaced by this sinful, bitter comparison that lends to rivalry? So an illustration I might have is uh, you're having uh, health problems, you see others around you, um, not needing to even consider or think about their health, but you yourself are dealing with certain health problems. Or maybe you're in a different stage of life, you're still single, but you just heard that your, your friend is getting engaged or they're getting married. Or even something as subtle as you're envious of a friend who gets to work from home and work very reduced hours while you're uh, slaving away 40 hours a week outside. Uh, you are envious of them. So why is, why is this sinful? Why is envy sinful? Well, it kind of grounds itself on not trusting God's provision, not trusting God's wise provision and sovereignty in, in all of our lives, not just my life, right? When we, when we ask these things, we're essentially saying, God, why them and why not me? I deserve this better. I don't understand why you wouldn't give this good thing to me as well. It's objectively good. Uh, and you give good gifts, Father, so why not me too? Not understanding and not trusting in God's will and timing for how he's orchestrating your life. In a very similar way, jealousy uh, kind of plays itself, plays itself out uh, with under the, the, the umbrella of sinful rivalry. And jealousy I would define as the intolerance of rivalry. So you do not tolerate any rivals, anyone else that could be uh, become your equal or become superior to you. It's the intolerance of rivalry. Uh, this really just grounds itself in, we don't want to see other people be blessed, uh, is how jealousy comes up. When someone is blessed or someone is rejoicing, it rubs us the wrong way. It doesn't sit right with us because we don't want to see others be blessed. Um, we see it very clearly in uh, in the the ministry of the apostles, as the Sadducees and, and those false teachers see them proclaiming the gospel and seeing people won over to Christ, 
uh, we see these Sadducees being jealous. Uh, they get bitter, they get angry, and they, they send, uh, uh, send, send Paul and the other apostles to jail. They, they send people after them to persecute them because they're jealous of the, uh, the fame or the acknowledgement, the recognition that they're getting. Uh, in our lives, it could look as simple as a coworker of the same position who works the same job as you got a raise and got a shout out from your boss and you become bitter because of that. You see that, you see his, uh, see, see his or her um, advantage and become bitter. You don't want them to become better than you. Or you see, maybe it's not even someone who's getting above you, but a new hire, uh, someone hired to your exact same position with a lot less qualifications, a lot less uh, education. They somehow manage to squeeze their way into the door and get that same position as you even though you worked so hard to rack up those hours of experience and all, this, uh, all these credentials for the same position, and you become jealous of them. Like, how could God let someone like that, who was not qualified, undeserving, get the same status as me? That's how jealousy also crops up. Um, but again, why is this sinful? Well, in the context of the local church and in, in the body of Christ, uh, when we have jealousy, we undermine the unity that we have in Christ. Uh, we're reminded all throughout the epistles that we are all members of the same body. And when we lash out in jealousy or when we, when we harbor jealousy in our hearts, uh, we are objecting to the, the unity that Christ died for. Christ uh, is... Christ's blood was shed so that the church would be unified in him, that he would be the head over us. Um, but in our sinfulness, in our jealousy, we give the devil a little foothold to wedge himself into our unity. That's jealousy there. Does anyone need any clarification on jealousy and envy? No? Okay. We'll go on to sinful competitiveness. This one was a, was a hard one. Competitiveness, competition is very ingrained to our, into our culture, I would say. Um, and Bridges kind of highlights this as an arena where we can be sinful, when we can be uh, sinfully uh, opposed to someone else. So this I would define as the urge to always be the one on top, to be the one who wins, sometimes at the expense of others. This is sinful competitiveness. Uh, and it really just boils down to you don't care whether someone else doesn't get to win as long as you get to win, as long as you come out on top. Um, and why is this sinful? Of course, this is a very godless way of going about competition. Competition in and of itself, I want to clarify, is not sinful. Uh, but in our sinfulness, we make it out to be something of a self-exalting competition. We, we make it out to be something of comparison, of uh, comparing talents and, and uh, training and aptitude when we know those things are not from our own efforts, right? We know they're from God. Um, and this really does undermine God's provision once again. God may bless someone with a certain talent more than you, um, and he may bless someone in a certain race, a certain competition, so that they come out as the winner. Um, but in our sinfulness, in our sinful competitiveness, uh, we don't like how that plays out. We want to be the one who wins. We want to be the one who, who is exalted. Um, it also just doesn't give praise to where it's due. Some people, maybe they worked harder than you. Maybe you just didn't see that. 
and in your competitiveness, you already have dismissed them uh, entirely. You only see your own effort and you've dismissed someone else's efforts entirely. Um, I think a very heartwarming example to counter that is uh, maybe in a race, in a marathon, you see in videos of people, they're in those final 50 meters of the race and they get a, the, the person in the lead gets a cramp and their leg is cramping up and they just fall to the ground. Um, but we see those heartwarming videos of someone who's in second place, comes up to them and grabs them up, puts them on their shoulders and walks them across the line with them. It's heartwarming, it touches us. Um, and I think for the reason that we are not desiring to win anymore, we see, we acknowledge that that person has put aside their own desires to win. Uh, they acknowledge that this person is in pain and they lose that selfishness for the sake of serving someone else. Um, and this, this competitiveness is, uh, is a very, very, uh, very subtle way that selfishness creeps into our lives. It's a very subtle way that pride creeps into our lives. Um, again, competition is a great arena for God's, uh, for God's purposes. Like competition is a great arena for gospel opportunities. Um, in competing against other people, if you are blessed with winning, if you are blessed with success, uh, give praise to God. Give honor to God so that people may see. If people ask us, wow, how did you get first place so easily? Um, maybe instead of me saying, oh, I'm good at this or I trained in this way, I could acknowledge, man, I was never this way in the first, in the first place. I, was, I never started off this well, but God blessed me and trained me uh, to be at the point where I am now. It's a, it's a really good way to, to proclaim the gospel in competition. Um, and then I'm going to move on to being controlling as our last sin there. Um, being controlling is just simply seeking to control others so that we can get the advantage that we want. Um, and wh why is this sinful? It's simply, well, it's my way or the highway, right? You are disregarding someone else's uh, desires disregarding someone else's uh, really their presence and you make others out to be obstacles at best uh, but enemies at worst you control them you manipulate them all the for the sake of self-serving um, and again it follows this theme of you just making someone out to be your enemy or a stepping stone at best um, and you're not really caring to to hear what they have to say but being controlling there as a, as a way that we exhibit rivalry. And then, so we move on. So we ought to put sinful rivalry to death, of course. Um, and how do we do that? Well, again, recognize God's will that will uniquely play out in each of our lives. All things are working together for the good of his people, uh, for the good of his purposes in your life, um, but also the lives of others. It's not just all about us. Uh, we know and trust that God will do good in our lives, um, but we can acknowledge and we should also praise God for doing good in other people's lives. Um, this is all part of being in the body together as we are um, members of one another. Uh, again, we don't want Satan to come in and disrupt that unity. And then on the offense, we preserve to we seek to preserve unity by outdoing one another and showing honor. Uh, so it's not just saying no to, to competition, saying no to envy and jealousy, 
Um, but do more than that. Outdo one another. Outdo one another in showing honor and doing good works. Uh, continually give praise for one another and encourage one another as you see them doing good works and be blessed by God. So that concludes uh, that last sin. And then I'll go ahead and close us with our conclusion. Um, kind of going back to being called a saint in chapter one of his book, being called a saint is a high calling. We, we should acknowledge that. It's not something we, we earn by hard work or rigid law abiding. Um, Christ is the one who has made us saints and he's given the spirit to help us live a life of being a saint. Um, the spirit not only gives us the power to say no to sinful desires as we will often need and need to depend on, but he gives us new affections to walk in instead of old fleshly desires. And I do want to know as saints, uh, even as we study the other sins, as saints, our goal is not to walk the fine line of sinning versus not sinning. Um, in, a in a couple of our sins as we study them, it can be very easy to, to say like, well, this isn't technically sinful, so it's okay to do. Or this one is kind of like right in the line. Maybe sometimes it's sinful and maybe it's not. But I want to draw our attention back to, to being called as saints. Our goal is not to walk that line and parse them out on one or the other side of the line, but to be far on the side of holiness. Uh, that is what Christ has won us for. That is what Christ died for. So as we live as those led by the Spirit, uh, the God-honoring desires he gives um, and living by those desires, we should reject any desires of the flesh and remember that we are collectively saints. Uh, we each, of course, are saints, but collectively in Christ, we've been united together, uh, so there really ought not to be any opposition or rivalry between brothers and sisters. Um, so I pray that as we continue studying um, these sins, there'll be more opportunity to, to apply these tools and see they're not, they're not uh, mutually exclusive, all these sins. We've seen pride and selfishness work its way into the sins that we study today, um, but these will also apply later down the line as we learn about anger, being self-controlled in that, uh, being frustrated, uh, sins of the tongue we need to be self-controlled about. Um, so I pray that these tools will, will come in handy and that you'll remember some of these. Uh, with that, I will close this in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Father, we praise you for being a holy and righteous God. Uh, God, and we thank you that in Christ, uh, you have won us over to be the same. You are, you won us and given us the status of being called saints. Um, and still you continually cleanse us and sanctify us by your spirit. And I pray that even as we consider um, our sinfulness, uh, that the gospel would always be a refreshing breath of uh, good news as we realize our sin in its rightfulness, as we see it before your holiness. Uh, may the gospel uh, affect us that we may put sin to death. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.